This is the Nietzsche Podcast. Goethe's Faust is a story about happiness and about the pursuit of happiness. And it remains deeply relatable and moving even today, hundreds of years after it was written. We tend to take it for granted that we all want happiness. But what does that mean? What does it mean to pursue happiness? And here, we're obviously not talking about happiness in the sense of mere physical pleasure or fleeting good feelings, because emotions have two senses in which we speak about them. You know, you can be angry in a moment in the sense that you could say, he said something rude to me and I got angry. But you could also make a statement such as, I've been angry at my father for the past 25 years. We understand that the long-term sense of anger doesn't indicate being angry in the short-term sense, 24-7, for 25 years. You weren't constantly feeling that intense, fleeting type of anger that arises when something irritates you uh, or obstructs you or insults you in the present moment, right? And it's the same with happiness. You can say, when you brought me flowers that made me happy, but the word can also refer to a long-term type of happiness, a deeper, non-fleeting kind of happiness that can lace your whole life across multiple moments, right? In the sense that one talks about when you say, for example, these days I'm pretty happy. We have other words that we could use, um, maybe not exactly analogous, but related. We could draw upon the word fulfillment, a state where you have all the elements of your life aligned in the right place, even if some unexpected or tragic eventuality happens in the future, you can, for the present moment, rest easily that you've done everything correctly, so to speak, or you've done everything you wanted to do or everything according to your own moral code or the moral code that you follow. We could also call this uh, eudaimonia, the ancient Greek concept. But I think if we clarify all these aspects of what we're talking about, we still, it all fits into the word that we use, uh, happiness. You know, when we're talking about a more profound, long-term happiness, a state of being and a way of life, not a fleeting emotion. Now, of course, the Buddhists would argue uh, alongside philosophers like Arthur Schopenhauer, there is something wrong with this picture. It, it, so long as we're not taking into account that happiness can't exist as a final state. You know, if our goal is to achieve um, a state of what we might call fulfillment, we make an error if we imagine that such fulfillment is anything other than temporary. Which, if we admit that, that would seem to deprive us of the very thing we thought we were looking for, right? This is because fulfillment is a state of being satiated in our desires. By striving in the world and seeking to attain our desires, um, you know, Schopenhauer and the Buddhists would say, well, you might temporarily gain a state of fulfillment. You know, in many cases, desires go unfulfilled and then we suffer out of want, right? But even supposing we do fulfill our desires, that doesn't put a stop to the desiring process. What arises when we're totally satiated in Schopenhauer's view is not contentment, but boredom become bored with satiety and begin to look elsewhere. As soon as our last goal is attained, happiness slips out of our fingers and then beckons us forward to some new desire, some new project. And indeed, we can draw on support from modern psychology as evidence for this view that human beings actually do not gain happiness in a state of passivity or in a sedentary or just passive existence. Rather, happiness is something found when one is pursuing a goal, it's the pursuit of the goal that gives the happiness, which is not so well described then as contentment, but uh, as Nietzsche described it 
happiness, the feeling of using one's power, of enjoying overcoming resistance or challenges. This is why when people finish, you know, their PhD, for example, you know, many report feeling a sense of sadness or, you know, emptiness, listlessness, or why elderly people who retire can sometimes deteriorate, you know, mentally and physically or die within a few years or months. I mean, people flourish when they have a purpose, um, when they have a goal they're trying to attain. Fulfillment is therefore always a temporary thing, and there's no final rest so long as we're alive. The only rest is in the grave, which is why, according to Schopenhauer, lasting fulfillment is impossible. The only reprieve is in not playing. The reprieve is in giving up on fulfilling one's desires. These themes, sketched here in broad philosophical terms, are the central struggle of the protagonist of Goethe's Faust. Faust is a character with an existential crisis. He's realized there's no state of lasting fulfillment to be found on earth. He has no faith in the church or in God either, though. He's followed the pursuit of knowledge to the highest zenith of education available to him, having mastered all the faculties of the university. And yet he does not find that sense of finality, the sense of lasting contentment. He, he's found all the knowledge in the world, but this knowledge doesn't account for the world, right? For the world itself, for its existence or its, uh, its purpose. And thus, unsatisfied with worldly knowledge, Faust turns to magic. And as most of you probably know, if you know anything about the Faust story, is that what happens next is an encounter with the devil, the devil in Faust's play, uh, sorry, in Goethe's play about Faust, goes by the name uh, Mephistopheles. He arrives to offer Faust a wager. <clears throat> With Faust's soul as collateral, Mephisto will give him all the experiences the world has on offer. All the secret knowledge, all the veil-penetrating magic. And so long as Faust lives on, and continues striving, seeking fulfillment after fulfillment, but never satisfied, Mephistopheles shall be his servant on earth. But the agreement they draw is that if Faust should ever say, Abide moment, you are so fair, if he should ever find true fulfillment, true happiness on earth, and not bored with the moment, no longer restless, you know, after the latest conquest, if Faust should ever wish for the moment to last, Mephistopheles will take his soul down to hell. Faust agrees to this deal, and he agrees to it because he believes that such a moment is impossible for, for him, right? And um, we might say the degree to which Faust is relatable is if we take the Schopenhauerian or Buddhist view of desiring seriously that on this plane governed by insatiable desires, it can never happen. The story of Faust is one of the most famous in all of Western folklore. It does not originate with Goethe, but begins as a folk tale about a figure that may have actually existed. This was Dr. Johann Faustus. Uh, he's a contemporary of Martin Luther. Uh, the historical Dr. Faustus was an alchemist, possibly a charlatan, who was known for peddling magical and alchemical services, you know, in exchange for, for money or payment. Uh, he would travel from town to town performing magic for people or giving them medicinal cures. And then he would leave that town sometimes to escape the consequences of, you know, being a snake oil salesman. Um, the story goes that this Faust, the historical Faust, the stories around him were that he had made a pact with the devil in exchange for magical power. 
and it was said he eventually died in an alchemical explosion. And uh, Martin Luther actually mentions Faust twice, I believe, in the written record in, in order to denounce him, right, as an example of uh, an evil person. And uh, in the literature in the decades and centuries that followed after Faust's life, the real Faust, he is always portrayed as a totally evil figure. His story becomes a morality play about the soul endangering hubris of man. He is like Nimrod from the Tower of Babel story, a human who attempted to surpass God through use of man's uh, you know, ingenuity and, and intellect, thinking that makes you equal to God. And Faust, you know, he, tr he tries to game the rules of reality by sidestepping them with the use of magic. This is a man who, in his arrogance, sold his soul to the devil. You know, he only cares for earthly pleasures and achievements and thinks nothing of the, you know, immortal soul or of, uh, you know, morality or anything. And so, of course, in the Christian worldview, there's only one end to that story. And Faust is accordingly taken to hell. Those are his just desserts as a sorcerer and a charlatan, somebody who lived for the flesh and neglected the spirit. The essential end to the story, and therefore sort of the point of the Faust story, as it appeared in literature, was therefore all the way up to the time of Goethe, the point of the story was to condemn Faust as to designate his type as evil. And this is true in Christopher Marlowe's telling of the Faust story as well, which is... Uh, probably the most famous and the best adaptation of Faust before Goethe's was published. Uh, the influence of Johann Wolfgang von Goethe on Western civilization, it, it's a really almost impossible to, to understate it um, because he he's such an underrated uh, figure. Um, I mean, really everywhere outside of Germany, I'd say he's underrated. Um, he's born in 1749 and lived until 1832. He was famous during his lifetime, and he would go on to become the defining literary figure of Germany. And at one time, Goethe would have been considered on par with the likes of Shakespeare. But now, the name of Shakespeare, it's much more famous among you know English speakers as well as non-English speakers, I'd say. I mean, it's partially because Shakespeare, he is the apex of playwriting uh, in the English canon, whereas Goethe is sort of like the apex of the German canon. But um, Goethe will have centrality to German culture tends to receive much less attention among readers outside of Germany, um, whereas Shakespeare has kind of transcended that, right? But in his day, Goethe was the supreme, you know, Renaissance man of Germany. He's a, a literary colossus. Uh, George Bernard Shaw, in his preface to Three Plays for Puritans, describes exactly uh, who Goethe was. I found this quotation originally um, through R.J. Hollingdale, uh, who also invoked it to describe the cultural effect of Goethe. So here is Shaw, quote, There can be no new drama without a new philosophy, to which, I may add, there can be no Shakespeare or Goethe without one either, nor two Shakespeare's in one philosophic epoch, since, as I have said, the first great comer in that epoch reaps the whole harvest and reduces those who come after to the rank of mere gleaners, or, worse than that, Fools who go laboriously through all the motions of the reaper and binder in an empty field. What is the use of writing plays or painting frescoes if you have nothing more to say or show than was said and shown by Shakespeare, Michelangelo, and Raphael? End quote. So Hollingdale uh, uses this quotation of Shaw's, and I'm, I wanted to use it not only because Goethe is mentioned in the quote, 
as on par with the level of Shakespeare, but also because this is exactly the way that Shaw describes it as what his career was like. And Hollingdale sort of riffs on Shaw's quotation, quote, in due course, the harvest appeared and Goethe reaped it all. In every category of literature, as usually understood, he supplied the model instance. Wilhelm Meister was the model novel. The first part of Faust, the model play. Dictun und Wahrheit, the model, model autobiography. Italianische Reise, the model, model travel book. And Eckermann's conversations with Goethe, quote, the best German book, in quote, in Nietzsche's opinion, is the German equivalent of Boswell's Johnson. The collected letters, which number over 13,000, is incomparably the greatest collection of its kind, and in poetry, the comprehensiveness and size of his achievement threaten to literally exhaust the capacities of the German language, leaving nothing more to be done, end quote. And so, you know, Goethe is one of the most productive artists of all time. He, he conquered every type of literary form, and he also made scientific discoveries, you know, he wrote treatises uh, on topics in the sciences, such as uh, color. He studied botany. Um, and so I think we non-German speakers could all stand to gain an understanding Goethe and his contribution to the Western canon. Um, but I, of course, would rather do that by focusing on a single work rather than trying to do a drive-by of his whole canon. Um, so Faust remains the most important work by Goethe with good reason, and there's probably no other work of Goethe more quoted by philosophers. Actually, I would say definitely. Goethe's Faust is indispensable for understanding the European mind, I would argue. In this one work, albeit a work that took Goethe his entire life to complete, so it's a life-spanning work, but in this one work, Goethe affects a profound moral revaluation. He reverses the perspective on the old Faust folktale and provides an image of the zeitgeist that started at the advent of the Enlightenment. In a sense, Goethe here eulogizes the Enlightenment, both in the sense of speaking in praiseworthy terms about it, um, and he does this by giving us a relatable main character who is himself the image of the Enlightenment intellectual, which is Dr. Faust himself, but also in the sense that Goethe is giving a eulogy in the way we'd say, talk about giving a eulogy at a funeral. You know, Goethe's Faust... Faust heralds the end of the Enlightenment. It's a criticism of the Enlightenment in artistic terms. And the Enlightenment is, after all, anchored by the faith in mankind's reason. The Enlightenment, you know, and the revolutions in science, philosophy, and politics that constituted the Enlightenment, this is all premised on the idea that we should, you know, in some sense, trust in the human faculty for reason, and that anyone has access to reason at least to some capacity, right? So rather than trusting in superstitions or the authority of institutions or archaic class relationships, we're going to instead trust in the intellect. And we might still trust in the old things to some degree, but in some sense, the story of the Enlightenment you know, thought is science coming to challenge and ultimately overcome all of those social forces generation by gen generation, um, you know, more so over time. And so Goethe's Faust is the image of the Renaissance man. He's the person whom Goethe himself was in some sense. He's a man of letters, an intellectual, a scholar. And Faust is the conqueror of all the domains of knowledge. He's the embodiment of this, this uh, spirit of striving for more uh, knowledge and more achievement. Now, Nietzsche argued that this attitude towards reason first emerges with Socrates, 
and, um, you know, then is codified in the work of Plato, Socrates sort of sows the seeds of the Enlightenment attitude towards reason as the means of finding truth, and the pursuit of truth is the highest value. This attitude towards truth was carried on then through Christianity, which Nietzsche called the people's Platonism. You know, Christianity makes an innovation insofar as rather than truth being the reserve of the wise and virtuous men, the philosophers, the truth becomes the common property of all. Truth is um, the highest value in Christianity still, as well as speaking of true words exemplified by Jesus and indicated by the association of God with the Logos, such as in the um, uh, Gospel of John. The same spirit continues through to the Enlightenment, beginning with Descartes' desire to apprehend the truth directly and to gain certainty in what he knows through his methodology of doubt. And so, and Descartes also a scientist, an early Renaissance man. So we can see how Descartes' methodology of doubt directly descends from the Socratic method, how this faith in the individual using his intellect, using reason to pursue the truth, flowers in the Enlightenment, but it existed in many forms before that. And um, that's the form that the Enlightenment takes uh, in the modern scientific uh, you know, method, right? And so that's why Nietzsche writes in the Gay Science uh, 344, quote, It is still a metaphysical faith upon which our faith in science rests, that even we seekers after knowledge today, we godless anti-metaphysicians still take our fire to from the flame lit by a, th a faith that is thousands of years old, that Christian faith, which was also the faith of Plato, that God is truth and that truth is divine, end quote. And so the character of Faust, in some sense, he's the representation of that aspect of the Western psyche, the truth-seeking aspect. Faust is the man of knowledge, right? And because no amount of knowledge seems to suffice and true certainty is never obtained or the quest always ends with the destruction of previous certainties, Faust has this uh, ruminating dissatisfied quality. The pursuit of knowledge, like the pursuit of any and all desires, never leads to a final state of rest. But just because he's reached the limit doesn't mean that Faust can stop. He can't stop at the at any of the boundaries, the boundaries of morality, the boundaries of decency or convention. He continues to seek the truth restlessly, for the truth is divine, even if he must practice black magic and endanger his soul to seek it. That's one way we could look at the Faust story. Johann Wolfgang von Goethe became one of the most famous authors in Germany at a very young age. And that was because of the success um, after the publication of his um, breakout hit novel, The Sorrows of Young Werther. It's a short novel about an intense, doomed romance between two young people, told primarily through letters, which ends in the suicide of the main character. The story was immediately, you know... Uh, immediately had immense popularity and an air of danger around the book as the cause of suicides in real life. But Goethe then went on to have this highly productive career that we've talked about. And uh, he wrote an early version of Faust, commonly called the Urfaust in uh, the 1770s when he was 26 years old. Uh, some have praised this condensed version of Goethe's Faust for its vision but ultimately he was not done with the Faust story, and he continued to work on a longer version of the drama. It wasn't until 1790 that the first part of Faust was published in its entirety. 
Uh, but Goethe was still not finished, and he worked on the second part through the last years of his life, and he finished the work just before dying in 1832 at the age of 82 years old. So Faust is quite literally a life-spanning work, as we mentioned. While he's off making anatomical discoveries, writing poetry to fill 143 volumes and politicking in Weimar, and you know he directed a theater for 26 years, Faust was a work in progress throughout that entire time. Goethe wrote a year before he died to tell Zelter that his Faust was more or less finished, but said, quote, It is no trifle to put forth in one's 82nd year what one conceived in one's 20th, and clothe such an internal living skeleton with ligaments, flesh, and skin, and on top of that to wrap a few mantle folds around the finished product that it may altogether remain an evident riddle, delight men on and on, and give them something to work on, end quote. Faust does have all those elements. It's entertaining as well as deep. Um, although I do want to note that Goethe was famously a bit amused by the attempts to read deep interpretations into every last nook and cranny of his play, and that there, you know, there's scenes that he'd included for the sake of comedy, or lines which were simply include, included as like jokes that were then spun into elaborate theories about like an esoteric meaning. Like, so Kaufman argues in his trans. Uh, his introduction to his translation that Faust is supposed to be presented in down to earth language. Um, or, you know, he doesn't want to have any these and thous in here. Right. Um, it's supposed to be, it, it is very poetic at times, but it's supposed to be, uh, com comprehensible to, uh, the average person. And that in spite of being a tragedy, the play is actually very comedic at times for some, uh, designating Goethe's Faust as a tragedy might be controversial because from a certain perspective, it's not very tragic. This is something that Nietzsche criticized in the book Wanderer in His Shadow. Nietzsche makes reference to the fact Goethe, uh, you know, he admitted that his soul was too conciliatory to write a true tragedy. And Nietzsche argues the actual content of Faust does not constitute a tragedy. And that's because Goethe did something that was different from all the other authors who had presented the Faust story. In Goethe's Faust, the devil does not win. He does not take Faust's soul. Faust is saved. If there's a tragic figure in the first part of the story, it's actually Faust's girlfriend, Gretchen. Uh, she basically has her life ruined. But in the end, it's a redemptive story. And Walter Kaufman argues in favor of a little charity with the label tragedy. Um, you know, as we might consider Dante's Divine Comedy, it's not exactly a comedy in the modern sense of the word either. But I should also say Nietzsche did not make this criticism of Goethe's Faust because he disliked the play. On the contrary, Nietzsche considered Goethe a great man, and many of Nietzsche's own ideas were inspired by content that could be found in Faust. Um, Faust at least in part, is a confrontation with a problem uh, that is the same problem that Nietzsche confronted in his philosophy, in his early philosophy, um, what Nietzsche called the problem of science. He says in his 1886 preface to Birth of Tragedy, it's a problem he recognized in the figure of Socrates, because Socrates was that original embodiment of the truth seeker, and in that book Nietzsche contrasts Socrates with Faust. Both are men of knowledge, 
But Socrates stands at the beginning of the Enlightenment project, or he's like a prophet of this project which has not yet dawned. Whereas for Socrates, knowledge is a promise, it's a thing to reach for, it's a distant star, it's a goal to inspire people, right? Whereas for Faust, knowledge has been exhausted. It's now for him a failed promise. He's reached for it as no man has reached for it. And what has he reached but the edge of rationality? The end of any sensible truth-seeking activity, um, you know, that's the meaning of Faust. And he, he, he stares out over a wide abyss, only beholding meaninglessness. He wishes for a shore and the wide oceans of knowledge and experience, as Nietzsche puts it. Goethe's Faust is therefore more like a reflection of ourselves as the children and the inheritors of the Enlightenment, unlike previous versions of the character in which he's portrayed as simply an evil person. In Goethe's work, Faust is us. And rather than feeling guilt for being like Faust, feeling guilty for possessing this insatiable truth drive, Goethe elevates Faust. The moral of the old story uh, is inverted because Faust is saved and not punished. Goethe's work asserts that within this endless striving, there's something divine, which God loves. Um, it's the only way to go about reframing our perspective on this world of desires, which are never satisfied, is to say that in the seeking, there's the virtue and there is the meaning. Since life is a restless seeking, if we celebrate life, we must celebrate seeking. So this radical revaluation from the way Socrates might have seen the pursuit of knowledge. The, the redemption found in the pursuit of truth that we get from Goethe's Faust is not an emphasis on truth as being of the highest value, as Socrates might have had it, so much as on pursuit of being of the highest value. So this is one way in which Goethe's Faust is different from the other versions of the story. Faust is saved rather than condemned, and therefore the fundamental meaning and moral of the tale is reversed. There's a second change that Goethe makes, a second major one. The Dr. Faust of the old folktales effectively sells his soul to the devil in exchange for worldly power for a set period of time. And there's no ambiguity in this exchange. And presumably when it comes to the devil, all sales are final, meaning it's irrevocable and there is therefore never any question in the narrative as to whether the main character will be taken by the devil. But in Goethe's Faust, the arrangement between Faust and Mephisto is a wager. It's not an outright sale. Mephistopheles gets to take Faust's soul if and only if Faust's striving ceases and he wishes for rest. Furthermore, Goethe does something brilliant in that he begins the play with a framing device. And he starts us up a level from the affairs going on down in the mortal world. The prologue begins in heaven, begins with a bet between God and Mephistopheles over the soul of Faust, which means that the wager between Faust and Mephistopheles is playing out against the backdrop of a wager of God versus Satan. So notice what Goethe does. He reframes the story and he, he places it within a frame that's already familiar by appealing to a narrative that is the oldest in the Old Testament canon. And in allusion which virtually everyone reading Faust ought to be expected to know, the book of Job. The book of Job begins with a meeting between God and Satan. 
So uh, I'll read from the beginning of the book of Job. This is from the New International Version. Quote, One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There was no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. End quote. So, of course, in the story, God says, go ahead, do your worst to Job then. And they effectively have a wager as to whether Job will maintain his faith, even when his virtue is rewarded with nothing but torment. Um, so in this Bible story, uh, Satan and God can seemingly be relatively civil to one another. And since this is one of the earliest books of the Bible, um, if not the earliest, some have considered that maybe the Satan we're seeing in the story was not yet associated with Lucifer as he's later understood, right? Or even maybe not even yet associated with the snake in the garden. The meaning of Satan was God's accuser. And so on this account, Carl Jung, in his psychoanalytical approach to studying the book of Job, says that Satan constitutes the Lord's doubting thought. Satan is a doubting thought in the mind of God. Or if you like, he, he's the advocate in the court of the king, right, for the opposing position. He's the skeptic. He's the negator, the one who argues against, argues the negative, the adversary, right? And when this was written, I'm not even really convinced myself that Satan is supposed to be the enemy in the way like Ahura Mazda and Araman are enemies in Zoroastrianism as the struggle between good and evil. The tone I get from this passage is that Satan is part of God's host and he's required in order for God to have true knowledge. Doubt is required for knowledge. This may be, you know, a strange idea to entertain in light of our ideas about God, which we now, you know, that God is omniscient and all knowing the book of Job presents this, um, very strange notion that God might have to test things. Um, that the it's through an adversarial process that we discover the truth. And so, as we've probably most all heard in the story, God first allows Satan to destroy Job's property, then to kill his children, then to afflict Job himself with sores and horrible diseases. Job doesn't waver in his faith, and there's an appearance by God at the end where he both relieves Job's, Job's suffering and he, but he also shuts down any questions from Job about why God would do such a thing. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a famous line where God's, you know, where were you when I set, you know, the foundations of like existence, right? Like, who are you to question me is the, the vibe there. Um, in the end, Satan loses that bet with God in the book of Job. So in Faust's prologue in heaven, we have the same situation. We have Mephisto approaching God in order to make a wager with him for the soul of Faust. 
And just as in the book of Job, uh, where God says, you know, yeah, have you considered my, my servant Job? Uh, it's the, it's the same structure here. God is the one to bring up Faust. He said, you know, he calls Faust his servant, says, have you considered my servant Faust? I don't, it's not exactly worded that way, but he asks if Mephistopheles knows of him. And Mephistopheles says he does know of Faust, but he says, well, if he's your servant, he serves the Lord in a rather peculiar way. His nourishment is not earthly food or drink, but this endless pursuit of knowledge and this absorption and ceaseless activity. And so Mephistopheles says of Faust, quote, nothing will soothe the upheaval in his breast, end quote. So this is, would seem to be a very tempting target for the devil. That sounds exactly like the kind of soul that the devil could, uh, you know, try to seduce. Goethe highlights the inherent humorous element to this, um, existence in Christianity is at the most fundamental level a battle for the souls of humanity between God and Satan. Um, but we would really wonder like, how could the devil ever oppose what God, <laughs> the outcome that God wanted to create. Right. And, um, you know, how could God actually learn anything from the wager if he's actually omniscient, you know, again, perhaps God and the devil are just amusing themselves as much as anything else. Um, but anyway, Mephistopheles says in so many words, are you sure you want to make a bet over Faust? He's assuredly mine. And God says, no, he's mine. He may serve me confusedly now, but I'll lead him on to clarity. Just trust me. The devil says you're on, but you have to let me do as I like on earth to lead Faust astray. Again, it's an exact parallel with the book of Job, although rather than God letting um, Satan do any number of inflict any amount of suffering on Faust like he does to Job, he's auth authorizing Satan to offer Faust all sorts of pleasures and knowledge and experiences, good good things, true beautiful good things, right? And so it's a very interesting reversal on that story of the Book of Job, and I think anyone who is uh, religious should actually ask themselves like which which would be worse for trying to lead a moral lifestyle, uh, having a lot of suffering or, or being given a lot of pleasures. And so we might, you know, you might say, well, fast is getting off easy. If that does way better than the bet God had with over Job of like, how horrible can you make Job's life? Um, you know, here they're betting like, well, how much, how much, uh, pleasure can you lavish on Faust? But, <laughs> the i think anyone could see that uh, it might actually be harder if we're if we're looking at the goal of life as to live a virtuous or moral life it might actually be quite a bit harder when you have the devil offering you every pleasure to lead a virtuous and moral life i think that much is is obvious so it's all a matter of perspective right um and so god says do whatever you like quote uh as long as he may be alive so long you shall not be prevented Man errs as long as he will strive, end quote. So this is, of course, just human fallibility or original sin. If we're speaking in Christian terms, people are always going to miss the mark. And uh, in some sense, if we want to look at it from an ascetic point of view, Schopenhauerian or Buddhist point of view, or even a Christian ascetic point of view, um, any kind of striving after worldly pleasure is in some sense an error. That is in some sense making the mark, right? But as we'll find, uh, the point of the play is sort of to bless that because striving is inherent to living. 
in spite of the fact that it leads to error. And so if we're going to bless man, we have to bless man's faults. But God still says in confidence, Faust will be redeemed. And he continues in the dialogue with Mephisto. God says, quote, a good man in his darkling aspiration remembers the right road for his quest, end quote. So there will be a direction that Faust will discover, even though his ambition has an inherently dark element to it. Mephisto, of course, is overly confident as well, and he's dismissive of the possibility of Faust's redemption. Um, Mephistopheles is, as he later describes himself uh, in the play, he is the one who negates. So he's like Satan in the book of Job, God's accuser. He's a prosecutor against the crimes of existence, the injustices of reality. Uh, and so he even goes so far as to present himself as an advocate for mankind because he's a voice speaking against the suffering that they have to endure while on earth. Accordingly, uh, God says to him, quote, Do you come only to accuse? Does nothing on earth seem right? End quote. Mephisto replies, quote, No, Lord, I find it a rather sorry sight. Man moves me to compassion, so wretched is his plight. I have no wish to cause him further woe, end quote. So we might uh, question how honest Mephisto is being here, but just like in the book of Job, this is a wager in which both uh, divine parties want to prove something to the other. Mephisto is in the negative position when it comes to ex assessing the value of existence, the value of life. There's even a sense in which you can imagine Mephistopheles might believe that by crushing Faust, he's doing a service for mankind. He is, like Schopenhauer, telling mankind striving only leads to suffering. There's no salvation in someone like Faust. There's no quest with redemptive power that redeems the world. It's all just an empty pursuit of hollow pleasures. And so... And by doing so, if he is able to characterize life that way, he could disprove God's axiom that his creation is in any way justified. There's a section from uh, Arthur Kostler's novel, Darkness at Noon, which has an interesting kind of, it's like a metaphorical description of Satan. In a way that gets across the nuances of what we see in this Faustian portrayal of the figure. This could also apply perhaps to Satan and uh, Milton's Paradise Lost. Satan as the dark side of the intellectual faculty of man. The intellectual faculty when turned pessimistic and turned against existence. But um, Kussler writes, quote, Satan is thin, ascetic, and a fanatical devotee of logic. He reads Machiavelli, Ignatius of Loyola, Marx, and Hegel. He is cold and unmerciful to mankind out of a kind of mathematical mercifulness. He is damned always to do that which is most repugnant to him, to become a slaughterer in order to abolish slaughtering, to sacrifice lambs so that no more lambs may be slaughtered, to whip people with knots so that they may learn not to let themselves be whipped, to strip himself of every scruple in the name of a higher scrupulousness, and to challenge the hatred of mankind because of his love for it an abstract and geometric love, end quote. So that's a description that we might apply to Mephisto and Faust if we wanted to be charitable. His is an abstract geometric love, as he describes it, a tortured, contrived affinity for mankind, but out of the desire to negate mankind, 
so that they can be free of the pain of existence. He could also be interpreted as the voice for that dark aspect of the intellect within Faust himself. Um, you know, once Mephistopheles and Faust join up, they're inseparable, and Mephisto seems almost to be an aspect of Faust. At times, it almost is like they're sharing the same body. In any case, after the prologue in heaven, we get the first scene with Faust himself. Faust is in his study, and he's listless as always, having reached the end of his quest for scholarly attainment, but feeling no sense of fulfillment. And thus he begins by saying, quote, I have, alas, studied philosophy, jurisprudence, and medicine too, and worst of all, theology, with keen endeavor through and through. And here I am for all my lore, the wretched fool I was before, called master of arts and doctor to boot. For ten years almost I confute, and up and down, wherever it goes, I drag my students by the nose and see that for all our science and art, we can know nothing. It burns my heart. End quote. What immediately comes to mind here is the purported Socrates quote, I only know I can know nothing. Now, it's not totally accurate, um, but I don't think it's an entirely incorrect summary of Socrates' attitude, at least in some aspects. Socrates is definitely known for negating propositions more than for asserting them. And when asked what made him different from other men, what it was that he knew that others didn't, Socrates said that it was his awareness of his own ignorance. You know, Socrates does not regard this ignorance as a tragic thing, but opening a field of possibilities, we might say. Once we demolish all those naive certainties that um, we once held to, but had no real reason to believe in, um, that opens the way for real knowledge. But for Faust, look at the conclusion he comes to. For all our science and art, we can know nothing. And rather than seeing this as a blessing, he feels it as a pain. Because Faust has reached what he believes to be the limits, he's become desensitized. He feels as though he's been flattened out. He has access to all knowledge there is, but cannot construe a meaning from it. He doesn't get the same pleasure he used to derive from the quest. He says, quote, No scruple or doubt could make me ill. I am not afraid of the devil in hell, but therefore I also lack all delight. End quote. So, you know, it's through the contrasting experiences of pain and pleasure, happiness and boredom, fulfillment and craving, that we're able to define those experiences. And it's only for the fact that we experience want that we can then experience pleasure from the release from want. Uh, again, this is a very Schopenhauerian analysis of the human condition. But so this flattening of sensations is because Faust has nowhere else to go. Um, he's stagnated, but he's still filled with the same restlessness, and it's unbearable. And so he pulls out a tome of Nostradamus. He says, quote, in this book full of mystery, in Nostradamus's hand, is it not ample company? End quote. And so Faust is now moving beyond the realm of science, beyond the realm of the respectable, and entering the domain of mysticism divination, magic. So um, Faust uh, continues, quote, Hence I have yielded to magic to see whether the spirit's mouth and might would bring some mysteries to light. 
that I need not with work and woe go on to say what I don't know, that I might see what secret force hides in the world and rules its course, envisage the creative blazes instead of rummaging in phrases, end quote. And so Faust has the same aspirations as Socrates, not to go on saying what he does not know, but having studied and mastered all of the faculties of the university and having not found a solid foundation for knowledge, this desire to not go on saying what he doesn't know um, becomes deeply painful to him because he doesn't know if he's ever going to get there. He's not found any knowledge which isn't contingent or which does not come to us through the senses. He wants to know what is that world beyond the senses? What is the creative force, the secret force that hides behind the phenomenal world and uh, directs the course of the world? And so he's willing to delve into superstition or into violating the laws of science, the laws of nature in order to gain this knowledge. And so he pulls out the Tome of Nostradamus, which features the symbol of, he flips to a page that has the symbol of the macrocosm. This is an alchemical symbol of the entirety of existence. It's an esoteric representation of the whole of reality. Faust remarks, quote, What jubilation bursts out of the sight into my senses? Now I feel it flowing, youthful, a sacred fountain of delight. Through every sense my veins are glowing. End quote. Uh, further down he continues, quote, All weaves itself into the whole, each living in the other's soul. How heaven's powers climb up and descend. End quote. So the you know the alchemist had a saying, as above, so below. The symbol of the macrocosm shows this interconnectedness of all things and the interconnectedness of the plans of heaven with the affairs of earth. Uh, but as Faust continues to contemplate the symbol, he comes to reject it. He eventually says somewhat bitterly, quote, What play? Yes, but a play, however vast. Where, boundless nature, can I hold you fast? End quote. And uh, he turns the page in disgust. Um, and so he despairs at this representation of reality, but beautiful as it is, as being false, it's but a play, simply a presentation, you know, a, 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 conden a condensation or an illusion, you know, like all human symbols, um, in incapable of actually capturing boundless nature. And so I think Faust's disgust is for the attempt to bound the boundless, right? This kind of representation, to dare to present the entirety of existence within a symbol, is sort of indicative of the pretensions to knowledge of the scholars, which Faust has come to despise. But So instead, he turns to a page containing the symbol of the earth spirit. And so he rejects this metaphysical, boundless picture of reality. He fixes his vision to the earth, to earthly pursuits, earthly, earthly things, right? So Faust cannot claim to understand boundless nature, but uh, he does understand the ways of the world. He says, quote, How different is the power of this sign? You, spirit of the earth, seem close to mine. I look and feel my powers growing. As if I'd drunk new wine, I'm glowing. I feel a sudden courage and should dare to plunge into the world to bear all earthly grief, all earthly joy. Compare with gales my strength, face shipwreck without care. End quote. So it's a yearning for all life and all its profundity 
in totality. Um, the contemplation of all the earth has to offer both good and bad. So he rejects the interconnectedness of the macrocosm uh, and instead contemplates the earth symbol and he invokes the spirits and uses magic to summon the earth spirit. The earth spirit actually shows up and he answers Faust. But Faust is terrified when he sees the apparition flame into existence. And this prompts the earth spirit to goad and make fun of Faust, saying, quote, You have implored me to appear, make known my voice and reveal my face. Your soul's entreaty won my grace. Here I am. What abject fear grasps you, Superman? End quote. Um, and so, yes, in the original German, the earth spirit is derisively or sarcastically calling Faust an Ubermensch. The spirit is saying, is this the one who sees himself as having surpassed humanity? Is he now shrinking from the startling truth when it appears before him? You know, the, the earth spirit rejects Faust's attempt to then converse as equals, and he compares Faust uh, rather to an insignificant worm, and then he vanishes. Faust is even more deeply distraught after this experience, after the earth spirit rejects him, you know, as being no peer to those of the world beyond. And so he begins to sink deeper into depression. Even his pursuit of magic is not yielding results. Then Wagner arrives and enters Faust's study. Wagner is a scholar and he's Dr. Faust's assistant. This character believes in the power of reason and of art and science. Uh, he does not have the same perception of the limits of knowledge that Faust has gained. Wagner is still very much in this Socratic mindset that, you know, the pursuing knowledge is the most valuable thing in the world because a mortal life arises and then passes away in the blink of an eye. Uh, but that only lends more importance to the domains of philosophy and art and like having a legacy, right? Because, that's the creative offspring of one's mind. And these things can endure long after one's passed away and be carried on by other minds. So that's the faith of Wagner. He's very much a, uh, in favor of scientific optimism, we might say. Um, but also he, he's not like a completely naive character. He expresses an awareness of the limitations of mortality, right? So like a quote from Wagner, quote, Oh God, art is forever, and our life is brief. I fear that with my critical endeavor, my head and heart may come to grief. How hard the scholar's means are to array, with which one works up to the source. Before we have traversed but half the course, we wretched devils pass away. End quote. Now Faust's response to this is indicative of exactly which archetype he represents, and that we've discussed throughout. Um, he has a witty rejoinder to Wagner's faith in scholarship and art as a form of immortal accomplishment. Faust replies, quote, Parchment, is that the sacred fount from which you drink to still your thirst forever? If your refreshment does not mount from your own soul, you gain it never, end quote. So the great works of mankind and all the pretty words ever written uh, you know, all these great stories and uh, idealized characters and cautionary tales. These are all wonderful treasures, but you can't just gather up these erudite references to just adorn yourself with. Um, 
What matters is like a transformation inside of you, the extent to which the wisdom's incorporated in your own being. Um, Wagner then leaves and Faust monologues more. The appearance of the spirit has made Faust despondent. He says, quote, To dream of eternal truth was within reach, exulting on the heaven's brilliant breach, end quote. And he goes on to say how he felt both so great and so small simultaneously. Uh, great because he's brought forth this thing which like crosses the boundaries between worlds, but also the awareness of his own insignificance on the cosmic scale. But now, after that, he's just back to the dreadful tedium and sorrow of being a human being again. Um, with its disappearance, the spirit took these feelings with it. Quote, You cruel one have pushed me back into uncertain human fate, end quote. And so Faust then speaks about the inescapable angst which colors human life and the pointlessness that comes from this eventual destruction, decomposition of everything, and how our awareness of this fact spoils everything for us, and how he's now plunged back this this promise of magic offering a bridge beyond these limitations of humanity have gone unfulfilled and now he's plunged back into contemplating this again and um i again i'm just reading a lot of the sort of what would you say almost chiron-esque philosophical reflections of faust that happen in these first parts of the play because i do find them very fascinating from a philosophical angle so quote Deep in the heart there dwells restless care, and secretly infects us with despair. Restless, she sways and poisons peace and joy. She always finds new masks she can employ. She may appear as house and home, as child and wife, as fire, water, poison, knife. What does not strike still makes you quail, and what you never lose, for that you always wail." End quote. I find that a very, it's a relatable description of anxiety, actually. That that which you have torments your mind as it becomes that which you fear to lose. Um, you know, part part of our restless mind is that it infects everything, right? The, the being, being the restless striver of modernity is that you have this restless mind that, you know, ruins otherwise peaceful moments. Um, and so there, you know, it's obviously... Uh, calamitous to lose things but it's that which you never lose that you still fret over all the time and so um it's another what faust is describing is just interesting because it's another way of talking about the this problem of happiness that when you get the thing that you have it doesn't bring you fulfillment it brings you anxiety or when you get the thing you when you finally possess the thing you want it brings you anxiety um, and so Faust here then considers suicide and he has truly sort of reached the end of his rope here at the beginning of the play. He sees no direction in which his life can proceed further. So he reaches for a vial of poison. He says, it's quite deadly quote, you essence from all slumber, bringing flowers, you extract of all subtly fatal powers, end quote. Faust then holds it up to his lips, but then the time is midnight as it happens, and the bells chime, and the choral songs begin. As it happens, it's Easter Sunday, and so just when Faust was thinking that he could no longer go on, that his endless striving can go no further, 
he's saved by the beautiful music emanating from the church. Remember, Faust no longer has faith in God, and as he says, he doesn't fear the devil or hell. The sound of the music in celebration of Easter stirs him back to life. He's resurrected, so to speak. Faust wishes to live again, um, to renew, uh, you know, at least for another day, his search for higher knowledge and, you know, new experiences and new things. So the musical beauty coaxes him into living again. And we have in this passage sort of, I think, a declaration of Goethe's artistic intent. I think insofar as Goethe is using themes and characters and aspects of Christianity, but in a way which goes beyond the dogma or doctrines of Christianity, Goethe is willing to do things like save Faust, in spite of Faust's eventual devotion to the devil, which we'll get to in this part of the episode. But Faust is to experience a mini death and rebirth, a little mini redemption here in the first scene as a foretaste of the content of the drama. It's not because of the redemptive power of Christian belief or scripture in this scene, but the sensuous beauty contained in the Christian celebration. So Faust waxes poetic here, and I'll read some of his monologue in an abridged form. Quote, What deeply humming strokes, what brilliant tone, draws from my lips the crystal bowl of power? Has the time come, deep bells, when you make known the Easter holiday's first holy hour? Why would you, heaven's tones, compel me to gently rise from my dust? Resound where tender-hearted people dwell. Although I hear the message, I lack all faith and trust. End quote. Um, and so the beautiful tones draw his lips away from the crystal containing this deadly, incredibly powerful poison. Even though he's a faithless man, as we've said. So in the next scene, Faust and Wagner walk through town. And Faust is, you know, he's known for his accomplishments and is admired by the villagers. He says, like, a pian of gratitude, a toast of gra gratitude to God uh, with some peasants who invite him over. They're like, hey, will you give a toast? He says, sure. And as the two walk, we learn that Faust has spent hours in nature ruminating, praying, and fasting, wishing for the attention of the divine. He feels alienated from the spiritual world. He wants desperately to make some connection with it. And so he attempts it through immersing himself in nature. Whereas for Wagner's part, uh, he says he's not comforted by nature, but by words and books. Faust goes on to say he feels two internal poles, two wills pulling against each other within himself um, that are threatening to tear him apart. Uh, Faust says, quote, two souls, alas, are dwelling in my breast, and one is striving to forsake its brother. Unto the world in grossly loving zest, with clinging tendrils one adheres, the other rises forcibly in quest of a rarefied ancestral spheres. End quote. It's a view um, of this human condition or the human psyche, we could say, that's common to esoteric religions, I would say, that there's two poles or centers within man that's one is earthly and the other is divine. Faust's longing aims in both directions. He just as much wants to ascend into the world beyond mankind as he longs to seek out 
new knowledges and experiences of the material world. As Faust says in a later monologue, quote, one longs for life and one would seek its rivers and alas, its source, end quote. So he longs for life, but he also longs for the source of all life. Faust and Wagner, then out while they're walking about, encounter a strange dog, a poodle. The poodle takes a liking to Faust, it seems, and starts uh, following Faust and follows him all the way back to his study. Faust says his goodbyes to Wagner, and he lets the dog in. He says, okay, I guess I've uh, got a dog now, and he gives him a little mat to lay on next to his stove. And he continues his depressive ruminations. And uh, what follows, it's an extraordinarily interesting scene to me because it involves Faust making a literary criticism of the Bible, specifically the book of John, uh, which begins, uh, as I referenced before, with the quote, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. All things were made by it, and without it was not anything made that was made, end quote. What follows is Faust, both perhaps suggesting uh, that this conception of the world is foreign to the German mind, but also to his own temperament. Uh, It's foreign to the Faustian mindset, which is consumed with activity. Um, This passage, it's sort of a little digression, actually, from the character development for Faust and the imminent meeting with Satan. But Goethe's work is full of little gems like this one, and so this is... uh, a blasphemous little section for Faust to critique God's description of how the universe is fundamentally constituted. But in doing so, uh, Faust reveals something to us by point of contrast. So Faust picks up the New Testament, uh, marveling at how this simple document has provided some ease and comfort and a promise of contentment uh, for you know p- people to find peace within. And just how strange and foreign to Faust it is that they could find that uh, fulfillment that he's looking for in this simple little book. And so he says, quote, We long for the light of revelation, which is nowhere more magnificent than in our New Testament. I would for once like to determine, because I am sincerely perplexed, how the sacred original text could be translated into my beloved German. He opens the New Testament and begins to read. It says, In the beginning was the word. Already I am stopped seems absurd. The word does not deserve the highest prize. I must translate it otherwise. If I am well inspired and not blind, it says, in the beginning was the mind. Ponder that first line, wait and see, lest you should write too hastily. Is the mind the all-creating source? It ought to say, in the beginning there was force. Yet something warns me as I grasp the pen, that my translation must be changed again. The spirit helps me, now it is exact. I write, in the beginning was the act, end quote. So Faust's intuition tells him, or perhaps we might say his German-shaped intuition, tells him it's not the rational discursive intellect that begins creation, but action, movement, right? We can see this, in this scene, we have a transition in Faust's focus. Uh, I think what's interesting is that it's kind of showing it's showing the progression of where uh, Faust is focused on in his life. So in it and how he keeps revising his translation of the line, he's moving from what did he talk about at the beginning rummaging in phrases. So the word to seeking knowledge or truth in a more abstract sense, you could say mind. Now he's seeking the secret force behind all the world. Right. And now Faust has finally figured out that what is common to all these things 
is the seeking, the activity. The act is primary. And so there is a parallel, I think, with Nietzsche's idea of will to power and how he believes that that's what uh, constitutes any sort of human action or, or human morality. Now, shortly after this blasphemous revision of biblical wisdom, something strange begins to happen. The black hound, the poodle, transforms, taking on a shadowy aspect, and it reaches up like a rising fog. Faust calls it a, quote, hippopotamus of foam with fiery eyes, how his teeth shine, end quote. Faust realizes then that the sigil placed over his doorway, a pentagram, which is used as a magical means of trapping spirits through witchcraft, has snared this demonic presence within uh, Faust's study. Well, he learns this because spirits who are just sort of, I guess, um, <laughs> hanging out in the liminal space around Faust now, spirits cry out to him that a devil has been caught inside. And they do warn him, we're actually on uh, this entity's side, but just so you know, you've trapped him here. Faust then attempts to use spells to ensnare the beast into his power. His less powerful spells don't work, so Faust declares, quote, Now listen well to a stronger spell. If you should be hell's progeny, then see this symbol before which tremble the cohorts of hell. Already it bristles and starts to swell. End quote. So Faust's magic proves to be effective, and as it turns out, as we all know, he's not ensnared just any devil, but the devil. Mephistopheles, trapped as he is by this unfortunate oversight on his part, then heeds Faust and transfigures himself from the swelling cloud into a man. Uh, and this is quoting from the play, quote, Mephistos, Mephisto steps forward from behind the stove dressed as a traveling scholar, while the mist clears away. Mephisto, why all the noise? Good sir, what is your pleasure? End quote. Faust demands the name of this being before him, but Mephisto is a bit cagey about it. He doesn't immediately come out and say, I'm the devil. But Faust is not stupid, and he surmises that this is the, quote, liar, destroyer, god of flies, end quote. But Mephisto doesn't still really directly admit it. it finally prompts Faust to ask more forcefully, quote, Enough! Who are you then? Mephisto. Part of the force which would do evil evermore and yet increases the good. Faust. What is it that this puzzle indicates? Mephisto. I am the spirit that negates, and rightly so, for all that comes to be deserves to perish wretchedly. Twere better nothing would begin. Thus everything that your terms, sin, destruction, evil, represent, that is my proper element, end quote. So this conception of the devil, we've already kind of discussed in some detail, but notice that, again, Mephisto's starting proposition, his first principle is that all that comes to be deserves to perish. Um, you know, I've mentioned uh, how influential Goethe's Faust was on Nietzsche and how much uh, Faust has just been quoted by philosophers. Um, uh, apparently that particular quote was a favorite of Karl Marx's take that for what you will in any case uh, it's sort of the sentiment it would have been better if we had never been born and Schopenhauer's language you know uh, 
what he says in the essay on the suffering of the world would have been better if life were no more easily called up on earth as on the moon. Um, the dialogue between Mephisto and Faust continues further fleshing out Mephisto's role in the cosmos quote Mephisto. I am part of the part that was once everything part of the darkness, which gave birth to light that haughty light, which envies mother night her ancient rank and place and would-be king. Yet it does not succeed, however it contend. It sticks to bodies in the end. It streams from bodies. It lends bodies beauty. A body won't let it progress. So it will not take long, I guess. And with the bodies, it will perish too. Faust. I understand your noble duty. Too weak for great destruction, you attempt it on a minor scale. Mephisto. And I admit it is of slight avail. What stands opposed to our knot, the sum, your wretched world, for aught, that I have so far undertaken, and it stands unruffled and unshaken. And that accursed lot, the brood of beasts and men, one cannot hurt them anyhow. How many I have buried now. Yet always fresh new blood will circulate again. Thus it goes on. I could rage and despair. From water, earth, and even air, a thousand seeds have ever grown in warmth and cold and drought and mire. If I had not reserved myself the fire, I should have nothing of my own. Faust. And thus I see you would resist the ever-live creative power by clenching your cold devil's fist. Resentfully, in vain you glower. Try something new and unrelated, Oh, you peculiar son of chaos, end quote. So Faust's criticism of the devil at the end there, he recognizes the inherent futility in what Mephisto does and that it's just driven by revenge. His accusation against creation is a non-starter because creation is already here and can't be annulled and no amount of microcosmic destruction, no amount of culling the individual things of creation can ever eliminate the whole of it. Killing an organism doesn't matter so much as the species is still around. And Mephisto, it seems, cannot kill the whole species. Life is simply too powerful. The creative force is too powerful. God is too powerful. And that's why Faust says, why don't you try something new? The devil is, in some sense, stuck in resentment and pessimism. Mephisto then asks that he be allowed to leave. He asks if Faust can do him a favor and uh, remove that pentagram or he calls it the witch's foot on the threshold of the door because it's preventing his escape. And the reason why it has to do with the angle of the door, which Mephisto sort of, he says it's not complicated, but um, it seems like there are some intricacies of magical arithmetic or what we learn later is called the witch's arithmetic that are not fully explained to the audience, but it seems like the, the angle allowed entry, but not exit. I mean, so Mephisto says, quote, the poodle never noticed when he first jumped in here, but now it is another case. The devil cannot leave this place. End quote. Faust does not initially try to hold Mephisto there. He even points out, he's like, well, there's a window you can escape through. But Mephisto says, quote, the devils and demons have a law. Where they slipped in, they must always withdraw. The first time we are free, the second constrained. End quote. Now, interestingly about that, Faust is delighted to discover that hell has laws. Faust, quote, For hell, too, laws have been ordained. 
Superb. Then one could surely make a pact, and one of you might enter my employ. End quote. The existence of laws in hell, you know, means they could have things like contracts. And if there's some constraint on the behavior of demons and devils, maybe they could make a deal that they'd be uh, obligated to uphold. That way, Faust might be able to conjure up some sort of demonic servant and uh, actually have control over them. So the deal with the devil, I should note, is therefore first proposed by Faust. He arrives at this independently. Um, this isn't despite the fact that the devil was already planning to ensnare Faust's soul. So Mephisto expresses an interest in making an agreement, but he says, well, that's not rush things. He says, first, let me go. He really does not want to be caught in Faust's study. So even though Mephisto has declared his intentions uh, to God in the prologue to steal Faust's soul, he doesn't take this opportunity to do just that. At this moment, he says, let me go. I'll, co I'll come back and we'll make a pact later. Faust understandably says, no, one doesn't trap the devil twice. I have you in my power now. I'm not letting you go. But Mephisto's unwilling to make any, agree any like agreement with Faust in which the asymmetry of power does not skew in his own favor, I think is the way to explain this. And so the spirits who earlier warned Faust that he had snared the devil and also told him they're on Mephisto's side. Um, after Faust says to Mephisto, no, you're going to stay a while with me. Mephisto says, okay, have it your way. But then the spirits begin serenading Faust with a song full of shimmering, beautiful imagery, you know, lots of uh, romantic style imagery of idyllic nature and virtue, you know, verses about rapturous bliss being born up into the mountains and the shining heavens. And Faust is serenaded to sleep. And Mephisto thanks the spirits and tells them, quote, Go, dazzle him with dream shapes, sweet and vast. Plunge him in an ocean of untruth, end quote. That uh, gives Mephisto the uh, time and the freedom to go secure what he needs to break the threshold hex, which is a rat's sharp tooth, uh, which he can use to, uh, I think, dislodge it. He then wishes Faust sweet dreams and leaves. So what just happened? I mean, Faust and Mephisto are both eager to make some sort of agreement, and both are looking to outmaneuver the other. Um, and when they meet, Faust has the advantage, and he thinks that therefore he can control the devil. Instead, the devil easily outmaneuvers him, and this represents why you shouldn't attempt to outwit the devil. Uh, the devil's usually one or two steps ahead of you, even when he seems at a disadvantage, and he's also smart enough not to get taken advantage of when there's a power imbalance that doesn't benefit him. He'll wait to strike the contract when he feels the uh, scenario is more to his own advantage. And after all, people are changeable and we have uh, these you know, temporary emotional and mental states that come and go and affect how gullible we are or how willing we are to believe certain things and how we behave, whether we're in, feel that we're on the top of the hierarchy, on the bottom, and Mephisto doesn't have any of those disadvantages, right? Uh, he always has the same uh, fundamental nature. In the next scene, there's a knock at the door of Faust's, uh, Faust's study, and this is a, supposedly sometime later. Mephisto says, uh, you know, it's me here to make our agreement. Faust says, come in, and Mephisto makes Faust ask him to come in a total of three times. You have to want this. You have to really want to invite the devil inside. Maybe inviting in the devil one time 
could be an accident or a lapse in judgment. But uh, Mephisto makes him uh, prove, you know, by saying, come in three times, that there's no plausible deniability any longer. And the imagery of how Mephisto is described is somewhat famous. He enters dressed as a fine nobleman with a red, fine red coat and a cock's feather in his cap. And here uh, from Faust, we get another beautiful expression of his ruminating dissatisfied attitude towards life. And I'll read from this monologue also in an abridged form quote, I am too old to be content with play too young to be without desire. What wonders could the world reveal? You must renounce. You ought to yield. That is the never ending drone, which we must our lifelong hear, which hoarsely all hours intone and grind into our weary ears. Though all is still, no rest is mine, as dreams enmesh my mind in dread. The God that dwells within my heart can stir my depths. I cannot hide, rules all my powers with relentless art, but cannot move the world outside. And thus existence is for me a weight. Death is desirable and life I hate. End quote. And Mephisto responds to this, quote, and yet, when death approaches, the welcome is not great. End quote. So he taunts Faust that when he had the opportunity to free himself from this endless rumination that he claims to hate, he did not take it. And Mephisto says, you know, when the time came, he didn't drain a certain bowl. Uh, you know, you had the bowl of poison in front of you, but you refused to drink it and let yourself be brought back, seduced back into life again. So, you know, this is the paradoxical nature of Faust's yearning you know he can't be he can't he can't stand to be dissatisfied with life anymore but he can't be satisfied with the prospect of death either um and so often if mephisto is sort of the if we interpret mephisto symbolically as like the pessimistic um you know negating power of the intellect uh he will always point out the contradictions in faust's uh you know because people are complicated and have these co- contradictory and paradoxical natures and he will always point those out to faust and uh anyway faust says that in his terrifying reeling he heard chimes that reminded him of the simple bliss of childhood and reflecting on this faust becomes even more embittered and eventually he's calling down curses and the things of life that have seduced him to live as he has which bring enticement but never satisfaction quote Cursed be illusion, fraud, and dream that flatter our guileless sense. Cursed be the pleasing make-believe of fame and long posthumous life. Cursed be possessions that deceive, as slave and plow, child and wife. Cursed, too, be Mammon, when with treasures he spurs us on to daring feats or lures us into slothful pleasures. End quote. More than this, he concludes the rant by calling a curse down on hope and on faith and most of all on patience. And so there's a real sense in which Faust is a sort of melodramatic character and Kaufman points out that Mephisto's role in the dialogue is often to deflate the lofty, high-flying verses of Faust with something sarcastic or vulgar. You know, M- Mephisto is simple, direct, and glib. Uh, Faust, on the other hand, uh, waxes poetic. You know, they both represent, uh, you know, Faust is the intellectual man. Perhaps there's something of Mephisto that is um, 
inherently intellectual as well, but they're different aspects. Mephisto is cynical and Faust is more romantic. It's another way to look at it. But Mephisto tells him, oh, you know, come on, stop playing with your melancholy. You're just human like the rest. You know, you, th- you think your pains or your longing is so much greater, but your pains and yearnings aren't all that different from any other man's. I know what makes you tick and I can offer you a path that will lead you to all sorts of worldly pleasures that will leave you delighted. And so it is here the devil proposes the wager. Uh, quote, Mephisto, I shall be your servant or your slave. Faust, and in return, what do you hope to take? Mephisto, there's so much time, so why insist? Faust, no, no, the devil is an egoist and would not just for heaven's sake turn into a philanthropist. Make your conditions very clear. Where such a servant lives, danger is near. Mephisto, here you shall be the master, I be bond, and at your nod I'll work incessantly. But when we meet again beyond, then you shall do the same for me. Faust, of the beyond I have no thought. When you reduce this world to naught, the other one may have its turn. My joys come from this earth, and there, that sun has burnt on my despair. Once I have left those, I don't care. End quote. And so, even though the story is framed in the prologue as this cosmic drama, a battle for Faust's soul between these two adversarial views of what humanity is and what humanity's worth is, what existence's worth is, is sort of what's on trial here, Faust himself is totally fixated on the earth. He rejects the macrocosm for the earth spirit, remember. So he can't live in this world because he sought all there is to seek, but he can't part with this world either. He only cares what happens here in the phenomenal world, in the world of the senses. So now comes the wager. Mephisto dares Faust to accept the bargain. Faust counters, arguing that Mephisto cannot really give him anything new, cannot actually cure his ennui. Faust says, quote, What would you, wretched devil, offer? Was ever a man's spirit in its noble striving grasped by your life, devilish scoffer? End quote. And he asks Mephisto to show him all sorts of things that have never been seen or experienced on earth. Um, he's sort of saying, you know, are you, are you really sure you want to be my servant? And Mephisto says that such a task doesn't frighten him. He's up to the challenge. He argues that eventually, quote, worthy friend, the time comes and we would recline in peace and feast on something good, end quote. And so Faust replies to that, um, and this is the section that's very, very famous in the play Faust, uh, quote, Faust, if ever I recline calmed on a bed of sloth, you may destroy me then and there. If ever flattering you should wile me, then in myself I find delight. If with enjoyment you beguile me, then break on me eternal night. This bet I offer. Mephisto, I accept it. Faust, right. If for a moment I should say, abide, you are so fair. Put me in fetters that day. I wish to perish, I swear. End quote. 
So now having set the terms of the bet, Mephisto insists upon drawing up a contract. And uh, Faust is sort of like, well, do we really need this formality? We just Can't we just shake on it? And Mephisto says, no, we need a contract and it must be signed in blood for blood is a very special juice, as Mephisto remarks. Um, so Faust says, fine, I'll humor you, and the wager is formalized. Mephisto becomes Faust's servant. The devilish aspect of the intellect has come into the possession of the endlessly striving Western man, having reached the limits of knowledge and still wanting more. And having been uh, sort of metaphorically resurrected as he has, or given a new uh, direction in life, Faust then resolves to leave the university and go traveling with Mephisto. He says, quote, The lofty spirit spurned me coldly, and nature hides from me her face. Torn is the subtle thread of thought. I loathe the knowledge I once sought. In sensuality's abysmal land, let our passions drink their fill. In magic veils not pierced by skill, let every wonder be at hand. Mephisto, you are not bound by goal or measure. If you would nibble everything or snatch up something on the wing, you're welcome to what gives you pleasure, but help yourself and don't be coy. Faust, do you not hear? I have no thought of joy. The reeling whirl I seek, the most painful excess, enamored hate and quickening distress, Cursed from the craving to know all, my mind shall not henceforth be closed to any pain. And what is portioned out to all mankind, I shall enjoy deep in myself, contain within my spirit summit and abyss, pile on my breast agony and bliss, and thus let my own grow into theirs unfettered, till as they are, at last I too am shattered. End quote. So we have a very important clarification of what Faust now wants and what he means by uh, immersing himself in the activity of life. It means both agony and bliss, um, the totality of human experience, as we've talked about. And what this really means is piling up extremes, both good and bad. He wants to experience tragedy and calamity and pain. He wants to have his fill of that. The ordinary seductions of the devil will not work for him. What Faust has determined in his knowledge is that, as we began the episode saying, it's the pursuit that matters, not the knowledge. Faust wants to throw himself into that restless activity of pursuit. It's the only place where we find happiness. But as, as the human condition goes, it's, um, it's always mingled with pain. It's an essentially painful thing to be part of this world of willing and suffering. So Faust says, very well, give me suffering, because I want the heights of life and the depths. And Mephisto is actually unable to help himself from admiring this attitude and praising it as bold. Um, it's one of the reasons why he has this bet with God in the first place, because both, uh, as Mephisto says, this is sort of towards the very end of the play, the last part in part two, that Faust is this like rarest specimen that really does represent something uh, essentially and admirably human. So even he sort of admires Faust. But he doubts that Faust will actually be able to keep himself from getting lost in the bliss of a moment, nevertheless. In fact, he's literally betting against it. And so in any case, 
They're now off to take on the world. Mephisto says he'll arrange for the horses, and that the two of them can simply disappear. The world is their oyster. Uh, quote, come on, let your reflections rest, end quote. That's what Mephisto tells Faust. Uh, quote, and plunge into the world with zest, end quote. So that is where we're going to end for part one. And we're only at the beginning of the Faust story, but I wanted to really take our time in introducing the story and the characters and the premise and the background of the work. And also the way we've kind of gone over the opening scenes of the drama, they really have a lot of wonderful lines that are very rich philosophically. So, uh, and, and, and are very relatable to me as a modern person who I feel, you know, just as much consumed in the haste of modernity and the restlessness of it all. And this like, ruminating dissatisfaction that Faust has. I feel all of those things. And so Faust, even though, again, he's a character from hundreds of years ago, speaks to me. And that, for me, is the pinnacle of great art. Relatability across ages. You know, timeless communication between the artist and those who engage with their art, even once they're long dead. And so in Faust, I feel I've glimpsed something really beautiful about uh, Goethe, and that the struggles of his character can kind of inform my own. But in any case, so we looked, we took a hard look or a in-depth look of these opening scenes. We're going to go at a bit of a faster clip as the narrative of the story starts to get going. Um, and just to cover all of the material, which is Faust is, as many people say, almost impossible to summarize. Um, and so even though we're going to have to rely on some glossing and some summaries as we keep going um i want you know i wanted to at least dive deeply into many of the scenes and lines that show why i I really love this play so much all right so we'll finish next week when we discuss the gretchen tragedy which ends uh faust part one and then we'll talk about in that same episode faust part two this is keegan signing off if you enjoyed the nietzsche podcast or found it helpful you can visit us and support the show at patreon.com slash untimely reflections. The link is in the description. Or just share the show with any of your friends that you think might enjoy it or on social media. Thank you for your support.